Picture it. There was one minute left in Super Bowl 42. Tom Brady's undefeated New England Patriots needed only one play to defeat the New York Giants. On the third down, Giants quarterback Eli Manning was being yanked on by several Patriot defenders when he lobbed a pass to receiver David Tyree, who grabbed the ball and pinned it to his helmet as he crashed to the ground. Meanwhile, an irate Patriots fan, Sean Murphy, ready to throw a remote at the television set, watched from his weed dealer's couch as the Giants would go on to win Super Bowl 42, and Sean would go on to win over two dozen Super Bowl 42 rings. Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, a true crime podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. Today we're making a drink that pairs excellently with chicken wings, a Super Bowl staple meal. A Mayan michelada combines mezcal, or you can use tequila, mezcal is to tequila like bourbon is to whiskey, get it? And Mexican lager for a drink that sports ball fans can enjoy everywhere. The michelada is Mexico's answer to the Bloody Mary. One of the stories in Mexican history that explains the origins of the michelada is that Don Augusto Michel, el general, general, I guess, of the Mexican Revolution, frequented a local cantina in San Luis Potosí with his soldiers. After a long day of combat, Michel would order his men beers with lime and hot sauce. The bar manager nicknamed the drink after Michel, combining Michel with chelada, or cold one. There are a couple of other fun origin stories, but I love the Mexican Revolution. (laughs) So let's go with this one. Here's to a drink after your worst day at work or before the biggest football game of the year. So for the michelada, you're going to take one part tequila or mezcal, one part lime juice, and a half a part agave nectar. Add to that four to five dashes of hot sauce, two to three dashes of Worcestershire sauce, and put that in your shaker. Shake well and then strain into a pint glass. That pint glass should be rimmed with salt or, my preference is, tahine and a lime, of course. Once that's in the glass, you're going to top with beer and then enjoy. For the virgin Mayan michelada, you're going to take one part non-alcoholic tequila, one part lime juice, a half a part agave nectar, four to five dashes of hot sauce, and two to three dashes of Worcestershire Cheshireshire sauce. Put that in your shaker, shake it with ice, then strain into a pint glass. Then you'll top that with, again, that non-alcoholic lager and a top with a lime. Don't forget the tahini around the rim and enjoy. Sean Murphy was your typical Patriots fan. He drank lots of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. He had a mullet and a horseshoe mustache. He said that he needed to get his Kaki, so he could go pack the car. Sean was a furniture mover in Lynn, Massachusetts, a suburb just north of Boston. And Sean was known to head to Foxborough to watch the Patriots play when he could snag tickets. In fact, he went to the two Patriots' previous playoff games in person that year and would have been at the Super Bowl too, but the tickets fell through at the last minute. Sean Murphy was born and raised in Lynn, Massachusetts. His father, Teddy, worked at General Electric Company, a jet engine plant. Sean Murphy was also a best-in-class cat burglar. On Saturday nights, he would pull on a complete all-black suit and dressed like a ninja, he would head around town looking for his next joint to case. 
Sean came by the trade naturally, as he had been doing it since he was a rising ninth grader. On a summer night, Sean's brother came home with his friends, riding some Yamaha dirt bikes they'd just stolen. They told Sean that if he wanted one, he'd have to steal it himself. So he did. During Christmas break of his ninth grade year, he and his cousin burglarized his first pharmacy. In high school, Sean stole enough money to buy a midnight blue Camaro and spent a lot of his money on keggers and smoking weed. Sean's first prison stint was when he was 17, after leading police on a car chase in a stolen Corvette. He would say about prison, I got there and my whole neighborhood was there. Sean learned a lot about burglarizing in his 20s and 30s, learning how to disable alarms, cut steel with a torch, conceal fingerprints, and how to crack safes. He once even littered a crime scene with collected cigarette butts to confuse DNA analysts. Sean would say, I'm a professional thief, a master thief, and no one would really argue with that fact. Not even police, who were known to call him brilliant at it. Still, he was in and out of prison where he once wrote an instruction manual titled Master Thief, How to Be a Professional Burglar. He would say, the idea is sneak in, do what you got to do, and get out of there with nobody seeing you. Using cell phone jammers, he would prevent people from calling the police in the middle of his crimes. He even coined a verb, to murf, which meant to cut communications lines and block wireless transmitters. By the early 2000s, Sean Murphy was the undisputed best and most prolific burglar in Lynn. He started a furniture moving company called North Shore Movers, which gave him a convenient excuse to keep a warehouse full of tools and trucks. He also really did move some furniture. He lived in the house he grew up in and did a lot of throwing keggers and smoking weed, just like he did when he was a teenager. In other words, not much had changed. In 2003, Sean met Ricky Lee Brown, then a junior at Lynn English High School. A few years later, when Ricky Lee was legal, they met again at a courthouse by chance, and they started dating. Ricky Lee was an aspiring news anchor. She would say, My life was always hard. He made things very easy. Apparently, he had a similar arrangement with four or five other women Ricky Lee's age, which would be, you know, half of Sean's age at that time. It seems like the women knew about each other as they took turns spending the night with him. They also helped him run his moving company, and they would sell makeup he stole at a flea market in a neighboring town. Once, after a big burglary, he bought all of them breast implants. Ricky Lee moved in with him, and she says that Sean called her the queen of the castle. And then one day, Sean brought home a new girl, Jordane. I am going to omit her last name for privacy reasons. Jordan soon became his favorite and moved into the house. Sean would soon kick Ricky Lee out for Jordan. A few weeks after Sean and his weed dealer sat around the house eating ribs and smoking joints all day, watching the Super Bowl, Sean was at the Boston Public Library browsing the internet for his next burglary. Well, there he happened to come across an article about the Giants' Super Bowl rings. According to the article, Michael Strahan had told Tiffany & Company, the company that was designing the rings, that he wanted a 10-table stunner, or a ring that could be seen from 10 tables away at a restaurant. Tiffany obliged, producing a 1.72 carat ring, engraved on the side with the score, NYG 17, NE 14. There were to be 150 rings made, enough for the players, the owners, the front office, and the owners' families. 
Though Tiffany designed the rings, they were going to be manufactured by E.A. Dion Inc., a family-owned jewelry company in Attleboro, Massachusetts, an hour and a half south of where Sean lived. So, Sean did what he always did before a heist. He made a plan. He figured out the last time the company manufactured Super Bowl rings and figured out when those were distributed so that he could choose a date, which he does, for early June. And Sean would say, In my business, it's location, location, location. E.A. Dion fit the profile perfectly. He scouted out the facility. It's in a fairly secluded industrial park, except that just behind, about a half mile away, is Highway I-95 that will provide background noise to cover the sounds. Sean had decided in part to do this crime because, well, he was pissed that the Patriots had lost the Super Bowl. So he continued to make plans for the burglary, but his hopes were dashed when a week before he had scheduled to do it, he saw the Giants on TV with their rings. He decided to go through with the plan regardless, but, well, because he figured they'd have other things worth stealing. So on June 8th, 2008, Sean and two friends met at the moving company warehouse in Lynn. Sean had used a fake ID to rent a 24-foot white box truck from Budget and wiped down his tools with simple green cleaner to get rid of fingerprints. They trekked the 60 or so miles to E.A. Dion's office and workshop. It was a white one-story building, and it was so quiet that they could indeed hear the cars passing on that highway a half a mile away. The three of them wore the usual burglary outfit. Black jumpsuits, gloves, and booties for their shoes, and masks with slits cut for eyes. In the right pocket of their jumpsuit, they had a police scanner with an earpiece that went into their right ear, so they could hear if the police got a call about a burglary. In the left ear, they put a walkie-talkie earpiece receiver and the walkie-talkie in their pocket so they could communicate with each other. They wore a miner's light on their forehead and carried a fanny pack with handheld tools. They also carried some practical tools that made this clear that that it wasn't their first rodeo. Power saws, drills, crowbars, and get this, that cell phone jammer. These guys knew what they were doing. Once they arrived in the late afternoon, they parked in a parking lot within earshot of E.A. Dion's and watched the building, drinking water and smoking pot to pass the time. Once the sun went down, it was in fact time. One of the men was assigned to be the lookout, while the other two climbed onto the roof, where Sean found an outlet to plug in the jammer. His buddy walked the perimeter of the roof, trying to make outbound calls with a burner cell phone, but the jammer was working perfectly. Excellent. Sean cut the telephone wire coming up the side of the building, and then the two hopped off the building, and all three hid in the forest for 45 minutes, just to be sure they hadn't tripped any alarms. Sean and his buddy headed back to the roof, well, after they hadn't tripped any alarms, and then plugged in the power saw and started hacking at the roof itself. Once Sean created a human-sized hole, he jumped down, landing on a cage on the shop floor. Once inside the building, the two found just an embarrassment of riches, to the tune of $2 million of gold and jewelry. They propped open all the internal doors to make going from room to room easier and started sweeping jewelry and gold into two 50-gallon trash cans. They dragged them from room to room to get more and more loot. According to Sean, they were in absolutely no hurry. They took necklaces, antique coins, bracelets, wedding bands, just tons of gold jewelry. They loaded everything into the box truck they brought, including a safe that they could not crack, but instead just lifted onto a pallet jack. They also stole that pallet jack from E.A. Dillon. Anyway, they pushed that through the loading dock into the 24-foot box truck. 
Uh, Sean's buddy was the one that found the rings in an office, including ones engraved for Eli Manning and the 10 table man himself, Michael Strahan. Turns out not all the rings had been given out yet. F them giants, Sean remembered thinking, only he didn't say F. They don't deserve them rings. So he grabbed those two, and as it got close to sunrise, the three headed home. Sean ended up with 50% of the loot, while the other two split the other 50%. When he got home, he spread his haul out on the bed. Ricky Lee got a ring, but apparently Jordan, who was in trouble, did not. He stashed the rest of the loot in a safety deposit box and sold, traded, or gave away most of it within the next few months. The New York Post headline after the burglary declared, A Giant Heist! Some writers joked that the Patriots coach was the prime suspect of the crime. The Boston Herald said that the heist baffled the FBI. In 2008, Lieutenant Al Zanni had been assigned to the FBI's Boston Bank Robbery Task Force. He was a relentless officer, known to hide in trees or disguise himself to make an arrest. After a few months of investigation by local police, the FBI and Lieutenant Al were brought in to help. Al, who had been after Sean for almost 20 years, knew that not only was Sean the only one smart enough to pull off such a sophisticated heist, he was also the only one cocky enough to hold on to those rings. Al would say, As soon as I heard about E.A. Dion, the only person that came to mind that was capable of doing such a break was Sean Murphy. He would also say, He's a smart kid, but he's not smart enough. Al's theory was that they weren't going to get anywhere with Sean, so he made a move to rattle the trees around him. Al and his partner paid a visit to Ricky Lee's house, but the doormat said, come back with a warrant, so he moved along. He also went to see Jordan, approaching her on January 15th, 2009, after having her arrested for an outstanding burglary warrant. They told her they wanted to talk to Sean, but apparently Sean and her were on the outs, and she, well told them everything. Oh, and especially that Sean had given Ricky Lee a Super Bowl ring and not her. I thought we'd learned this lesson by now. Keep the women in your life happy if you're a criminal. Dordain would later also say that she was glad that Sean would know who gave him up. She would say, I want him to know it was me who did him. Sean wouldn't be arrested until he committed yet another burglary, making off with over a million dollars in cash that he basically ruined with a thermal lance, a device that creates a fire that burns almost as hot as the surface of the sun and apparently makes dollar bills smell awful enough to make his accomplice throw up. But that's for another episode of Capers and Cocktails. Just before sunrise on January 23, 2009, 19 officers from the FBI, DEA, ATF, and state police gather, and with them are officers from five local police departments, including Lynn. Just before 6 o'clock a.m., they roll out. Some head to Sean's house, a small two-bedroom home built in the 1850s a mile away. Others are headed to North Shore Movers, and still others to Ricky Lee's condo. They surrounded Sean's house and stormed in, arresting Sean in his boxer shorts. They would use safety deposit keys found in Sean's house to locate 27 Super Bowl rings. He was held in prison on $3 million bail, and after about a year, he made a deal. He was given temporary immunity, and he confessed to everything, even giving tips about other burglars. The deal he was offered was 10 years in prison for the crime after the Super Bowl ring theft, and likely more prison time for the rings, which he declined. 
He went to trial on October 17, 2011 for the robbery he had committed after the Super Bowl ring theft and represented himself. Why does this always happen? When questioning his weed dealer, one of the two witnesses against him, his dealer said, I've only hung out with you and we smoked weed. And you told me because you like to run your mouth about how everything is. His defense boiled down essentially to him being some kind of burglary professor who was being set up by his students. That evidently did not work, and he was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, reduced to 13 years on appeal. He probably should have taken that plea deal to begin with, would have only gotten that 10 years. Anyway, while in jail, he worked out, watched General Hospital, which apparently he'd already been doing every day of his life for 35 years. That was on from 2 to 3 p.m., and he also enjoyed some Star Trek Voyager. On Saturdays, he would listen to three hours of House of Hair, a hair metal music show. He also watched three Patriots Super Bowl victories from behind bars. Sean Murphy would finally plead guilty for the Super Bowl ring theft in 2019, being sentenced to two years in prison and five years of probation. Despite the fact that he told Bloomberg reporter Zeke Foe, there's a lot of ways to make legitimate money out there. I'm just going to keep my hand out of the illegal cookie jar now. I... I don't think he took his own advice. In early March 2023, 58-year-old Sean Murphy was again sentenced to 18 months in prison for, among other things, allegedly posing as a homeless veteran and soliciting donations outside a supermarket for a fake veteran's charity. I guess some people never learn. There evidently is a book and a documentary in the works about Sean Murphy's life. Count me in. And the Super Bowl rings may have been his most high-profile theft, but at the end of the day, Sean said it best. I'm a crime dog. If it wasn't that one, it was going to be another one. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope Sean gets out of prison for good in a couple of years and finds something more healthy to do with all those brains. Somehow I kind of doubt it. Hey, are these episodes too long for you? Would you like to have the drink separate from the story? Join join us on TikTok where that and all of your other dreams can come true. We are at Capers and Cocktails with the and spelled out. You can find all the links at www.keepersandcocktails.com, actually. I bought the domain. Look at there. I'll see you all next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to stealing rings that can be seen from 10 tables away.